0: On the night of September 25, 1877, Ed and I were lounging around Beatty and Kelly's restaurant. Then, out of nowhere, the sound of a gunshot sharpened my senses with a rush of adrenaline. I looked over at Ed and he held his breath. I saw him strain to hear with every ounce of his concentration where the shots were coming from. Ed's prickled ears relaxed. No threat here, said Ed. My ears strained for more sounds. More clues as to where the gunshot had originated. I ran to the doorway and looked out into the street. An over-exhilarated visitor by the name of A.C. Jackson fired off three more shots. He was on his horse in front of the restaurant. Jackson held the smoking revolver in his hand. It was as if the disease of whiskey in his mind had manifested the pistol in his hand. It was that reckless impulse that alarmed me. The impulse that soberness cures and indifference magnifies. So I saw the gun as a poison to both him and the Ramblers on the other end. I ran low out into the street and ordered the festive cowboy to halt. Not me, not tonight, Marshal, yelled Jackson. I'm going to skip out for camp. The cowboy turned his horse to ride out of town. I pulled my revolver and fired when the order was disobeyed. Halt, I said. Halt! Ed joined me by approaching the rider from the boardwalk. Ed fired at the fugitive. One of Ed's shots must have hit the horse, as it seemed to cringe. The rider spurred the horse once more and dashed out of town, off in the direction of his camp. I fired two more shots at him, but without effect. I mounted my horse to give chase when I heard Ed say, What the hell, bat? What are you doing? Just let it go. Nobody's hurt. After all, the cowboy's on his way out of town. You do not understand, Ed, I replied. The man's broken the law and he should be arrested. I gave my horse a good kick and imparted the chase on an escaping cowboy. It did not take long for me to get the sight of the shooter, but when I was about to fire on the shootist, I found that my revolver had not a load in its chambers, so I had no other choice but to return. The next morning at breakfast, I began reading an excerpt from the Ford County Globe. The relatively harmless gunfire in the streets of Dodge City caused both the Ford County Globe and the Dodge City Times to lecture against leniency with gunplayers. The Globe quoted Mayor A.B. Webster as saying, Some of the boys, in direct violation of the city ordinance, carry firearms on our streets without being called to account for it. They do so in such an open manner that it does not seem possible that our city officers are in ignorance of the fact. The Times editorial was somewhat more biting in dealing with the Texas weakness for discharging firearms. Mr. A.C. Jackson is a gay and festive Texas boy, and like all true sons of the Lone Star State, he loves to fondle and practice with his revolver in the open air. It pleases his ear to hear the sound of this deadly weapon. Aside from the general pleasure derived from the shooting, the Texas boy makes shooting inside the corporate limits of any town or city a speciality. He loves to see the inhabitants rushing wildly around to see what all this shooting is about, and it tickles his heart to the very core to see the city marshal coming towards him at a distance, while he is safe and securely mounted on his pony, and ready to skip out of town and away from the officer. The program of the Texas boy, then, is to come to town and hum around until he gets disgusted with himself, then to mount his pony and ride out through the main street, shooting his revolver at every jump. Not shooting to hurt anyone, but shooting in the air, just to raise a little excitement and let people know he is in town. In order to put a stop to this, the carrying of concealed weapons within the city limits has been prohibited. But this has only partially stopped the practice. Several times this summer the town has been thrown into excitement by the firing of revolvers in the middle of the streets, and the marshals have become very much aggravated over the matter and determined to put a stop to it if possible. Last Tuesday, September 25th, the sound of the revolver was heard several times in quick succession. The police were on the alert in a moment, and everybody rushed towards where the sound had come from. Men, hatless, and women with their back hair down hastened to see whether their absent friends were safe. But all this excitement was caused by Jackson indulging in his favorite amusement of shooting. However, he came out the loser, and that is some consolation. He was riding down Front Street, and about opposite Beatty and Kelly's he commenced to shoot. He had shot two or three times when the police got their eyes on him. Bat Masterson ordered him to halt, but nary a halt would he. He says, I'm going to skip out for camp, and bang, bang went his gun. Bat had a gun too, and he immediately brought it to heel on the festive cowboy's horse. Instantly after Bat's shot, Ed got in a shot. The horse seemed to cringe, but being spurred on, dashed out of town and off toward camp. Two more shots were fired after him, but without effect. Bat then mounted a horse and gave chase, but when he was about to hail the shootist again, he found that his own revolver had not a load in his chambers. So what else could he do but return? Jackson's horse proved to be mortally wounded, but the noble animal carried its ride a mile or two from the city at a rapid gait, and then fell to the ground and rose no more. Jackson hoofed it the balance of the way to camp. This will probably serve as a slight check to the practice of shooting just for fun inside the city limits. Ed entered the restaurant from the sun-baked dryness of Front Street. The cool late September wind followed him to my table. Ed removed his hat and caught a glimpse of my stern face. The squint in my eyes must have reflected my discontent for the morning air. "'How's breakfast?' asked Ed as he pulled up a chair. "'Why the doom and gloom, and what's up with the stern look?' he asked. I quickly cast my eyes down to the newspaper sitting on the table. This is what's wrong, I said, pointed to the front page article of the Globe. You can't be soft-shelled with these men, I said. The papers are all over us, the way we handled the Jackson incident. I pushed the paper in Ed's direction. Here, read it for yourself, I said with a forceful voice. You can't let him get the bulge on you. If you're a tenth of a second late in judging a man's intentions, you're on your way to Boot Hill." Some of these Texans aren't bad fellas, but when they have a skin full of booze, they'll shoot anything that moves. That's the way they live. They might be sorry as hell the next morning when they wake up in jail wondering what they did to land there, but it won't do you much good. Stop fussing, bat, Ed said mildly. They don't scare me with all that whooping and hollering. They're just kids, most of them, out on a spree. Damn it! I want you to be scared. Scared enough to watch out for your own skin. There were times I felt like the world was slowly disappearing in front of me. This was one of them. Or maybe it was just me who was unable to reach Ed. His attitude in knowing danger and recognizing a threat was fading away. He was just too easygoing, and I had to let it go. I had to make a decision on staying close to him for protection, or make my move on being elected for the Sheriff of Ford County. On September 27, 1877, I resigned my appointment as City Officer. The October election for a county sheriff was fast approaching. I knew if I had any hopes of winning over Dagger, I had to approach two key figures in the community. One being Charlie Bassett, and the other Bob Wright. I knew I had to put the political machine in motion for me to win the election. I had to make enough men of both factions to believe I was the man to wear the sheriff's badge. I had to convince them that I could be tough, but preferred not to be. Bob Wright looked favorably upon my candidacy. He campaigned for me by describing me as a gentleman by instinct, pleasant manners, good address and mild disposition. That is, until he is aroused, said Wright, then for God's sakes, look out. He told the citizens of Dodge City that I had much natural ability and good hard common sense, high-toned and broad-minded, cool and brave, a most loyal man to his friends. Wright confessed my abilities by saying, if anyone did him a favor, he never forgot it. My announcement for candidacy was founded on earnest. I wanted the citizens to know I was seeking the suffrages of the people. I had no pledge to make, as pledges are usually considered before election to be mere claptrap. The Shin brothers, W.C. and Lloyd, who owned and edited the Dodge City Times, threw me a plug on October 13, 1877. Mr. W.B. Masterson is on track for sheriff, and so announces himself in this paper. Bat is well known as a young man of nerve and coolness in cases of danger. He has served on the police force of this city and also as sheriff, and knows just how to gather in the sinners. He is qualified to fill the office and, if elected, will never shirk from danger. I was encouraged by the support I received from the Dodge City Times, so I decided to make an official announcement. I wrote the Times and they printed my request on October 18, 1877. At the earnest request of many citizens of Ford County, I have consented to run for the office of sheriff at the coming election in this county. While earnestly soliciting the suffrages of the people, I have no pledges to make, as pledges are usually considered before election to be mere claptrap. I desire to say to the voting public that I am no politician, and shall make no combinations that would be likely to in any wise hamper me in the discharge of the duties of the office. And should I be elected, will put forth my best efforts to so discharge the duties of the office that those voting for me shall have no occasion to regret having done so. Respectfully, W.B. Masterson. As it turned out, the town was pretty well divided on the subject of Masterson versus Dagger. Dagger had more political influence. Masterson, more general popularity. BAT was elected by a margin of three votes in November of 1877 for a two-year term. (laughs) On November 10th, only a few days after I took office as the new sheriff of Ford County, my brother Ed's humane approach to the problems of law enforcement almost came to a tragic conclusion. It started with a typical row in the Lone Star involving two sojourning Texans. Bob Shaw accused Texas Dick Moore of having robbed him of $40, while both gentlemen were under the weather the night before. Since both of the hungover disputants were armed, hungry and jumpy bystanders at the Lone Star sent a hurry call to the Marshal's office. My brother Ed answered the summons. When Ed opened the door, he witnessed Shaw near the bar with a huge pistol in his hand and a hog's head of blood in his eye ready to relieve Texas Dick of his existence in the world. I would have ordered Shaw to drop his gun and would have fired a split second later if he had refused my order. But Ed, being a kind-hearted soul, advanced slowly towards Shaw and quietly ordered him to hand over his gun. Ed's action, of course, took a lot more courage than gunning the man down forthwith. When Ed approached Shaw with his order to turn over his gun, Shaw simply replied, Keep out of this, or you'll get yours along with this thieving skunk. I take no pleasure in taking you down, Ed replied. None. Ed approached Shaw, reached for the handle of his revolver, and gave Shaw one more warning. But if I find it necessary, I will put a hurt on you, said Ed. If you cannot control yourself, I will do it for you. My brother's response to Shaw was a gentle tap upon the belligerent Shaw's head with a shooting iron. The tap on Shaw's head was designed to convince him of the vanities of this frail world. The tap on Shaw's head, however, failed to have the desired effect, and instead of dropping, as any man of finer sensibilities would have done, only burned rage through Shaw's body. He hissed at Ed like deadly poison screeching out like volcano erupting. Fury swept off him like a ferocious wave. Shaw turned his battery upon my brother and let him have it in the right breast. The bullet from Shaw's gun struck one of Ed's ribs, passing around his chest, coming out under the right shoulder blade. The wound had the effect of paralyzing Ed's right arm, which dangled helplessly at his side. My brother quickly switched his pistol to his left hand as he fell under the impact of the heavy slug. Ed then fired two shots at Shaw. The lead from Ed's gun plugged Shaw in the left arm and left leg. Shaw then lay helpless in the sawdust of the barroom floor. During the altercation between Shaw and my brother Ed, Texas Dick was shot in the groin. Frank Buskirk, who had been attracted to the scene out of curiosity, was amply rewarded. He was shot in the left arm while looking through the entrance door of the saloon. This was Ed's first encounter with gunplay. All who witnessed the spectacle agree that my brother survived with honor. The only exception in his handling of the situation was in his hesitancy in gunning down an armed and dangerous man. When assistants arrived, they found Ed had taken authority of the situation and he was in full control. Despite Ed's serious wound and his paralyzed right arm, He rose up to a standing position against the bar, rounded up everyone in the corner of the room except the three wounded men, two who were lying on the floor, and was holding them under his gun. My thoughts from this incident was for Ed to retire right then. He needed to preserve himself with his honorable wound and from becoming a subsequent tragedy. He just didn't have the needed killer instinct as a town-taming marshal. But everyone liked him and didn't want to offend his feelings. The city paid him the handsome sum of $23 for medical expenses and told him to return to duty when he recovered from his wound. Bob Wright told me after hearing of the Shaw incident that Ed was considered a natural gentleman, gentle and courageous, and a man of good judgment. I wasn't nearly so pleased with him. After visiting my brother in the doctor's office recovering from his wound, I said to him, "'I'll have you run out of town, Ed.' Unless you promise me you'll never give another gunslinger a chance like you gave Bob Shaw. All right, said Ed. Never again. I was shrugged helplessly, unappeased by Ed's disarming smile. I knew the firmness of character that was concealed by my older brother's amiability. Ed would agree to almost anything just to save an argument and then do things his own way. Ed returned to duty early in April of 1878 and I kept a close watch over him. But my own duties prevented me from watching him every minute of the day and night. In my own mind, I knew Ed hadn't learned his lesson. In early April is when the cattle drives began to peak. The drovers found Dodge City at the end of the trail, which represented their Valhalla, a place where they could eat and drink their fill and enjoy every vice. The cowboys had spent many long weeks sweating and freezing in the saddle, At the end of the trail, the offerings were somewhat plentiful with money in their pockets. The cowboy was easy prey for the denizens of the red light districts. He was offered every variety of liquor, games of chance, and women. One cowboy once said, Here might be seen the frailty of women in every grade and condition, from girls in their teens launching out on a life of shame, to the adventurous, who had once had youth and beauty in her favor, but was now discarded and ready for the final dose of opium and the coroner's verdict. All were there in tinsel and paint, practicing a careless exposure of their charms. It was about 10 o'clock on the night of April 9th when my brother, Ed, and Assistant Marshal Nat Haywood walked to their beat along Front Street. They heard the raucous sounds and several pistol shots. The shots were coming from below the deadline on the south side of the tracks, where anything went and was wide open. Ed and Nat Haywood hurried across the tracks to the scene of the disturbance. When they arrived at the place of the disturbance, they witnessed a half-dozen cowboys in the Lady Gay Dance Hall having fun and games. The cowboys, who had come in from their cow camp south of the river, cheered and showed elations over a dance hall girl. There came flashes of anger, jeers, shouting. They had become a mob, mindless and dangerous. They had lost all self-control. Among them was the trail boss, A.M. Walker. Walker, whose father owned a fine spread of cattle in Texas, was entrusted with bringing a herd of cattle north, for shipment east. One of Walker's rollicking companions was Jack Wagner. Walker had taken too much whiskey aboard, even for a thirsty cowpoke with many layers of dust to be dissolved. It was Wagner who had cut loose with the shots, and was being noisy and threatening other patrons. Ed was first to enter the Bard Dance Hall Theater. Ed witnessed that Wagner was carrying a gun. The gun was in Wagner's hand out in the open. Ed saw that gun barrel in Walker's hand was still smoking. You'd better check that gun with me, ordered Ed. Wagner shrugged and handed over the pistol, politely, but first. You're smart to do as I asked," replied Ed. I now believe the situation is under control. Ed, having retrieved Wagner's gun, strolled over to young Walker, the trail boss, and gave him Wagner's gun. I'd suggest you leave this with the bartender until morning, ordered Ed. Walker nodded in agreement. "'Yes, sir, Mr. Marshall, I'll do just that,' replied Walker. Ed respectfully tipped his hat to Walker, turned, and walked out in the street. Ed must have sensed that he and Nate were being followed, for Ed turned and looked back over his shoulder, witnessing Walker and Wagner on their heels. What Ed noticed next must have surprised Wagner, who was once again in possession of a gun. "'What is it you did not understand about my order?' barked Ed at Walker, I told you not to let Wagner have his gun. Now, why is Wagner carrying a gun? Ed turned around and advanced on the pair. I'll take that gun, he told Wagner. You can come down to the Marshal's office in the morning and collect it. That is, if you're sober enough. Like hell, I will, Wagner snarled. You ain't got no business fooling with a man's personal shooting iron. Who the hell do you think you are? I'm Deputy Marshal Masterson of the Dodge City Police, Ed replied. Now hand over that gun. Ed went for the gun Wagner was carrying and began a scuffle over possession of the revolver. The two men grunted as they took handfuls of each other's clothing and attempted to wrestle the other to the ground. By that time, four companion Texans came tumbling out of the Lady Gay. Walker and another cowboy drew their guns and covered Haywood, who had started to move to Masterson's assistance. Keep out of this, Walker instructed Haywood. Let him fight it out or you'll get your head blown off. Walker raised his gun so it would level at Haywood's face a few feet away. Haywood reached for his own weapon when Walker released the hammer. The hammer clicked and fell in a dud shell. The misfire of Walker's revolver screwed up Haywood's courage. Haywood became unraveled and unnerved by the click in his ear. He ran down the street for reinforcements. A few moments later, Haywood ran up to me. He stammered out the news of my brother. Ed's in trouble, Bat, exclaimed Haywood. He's surrounded by a mob of trigger-happy cowboys. I'm sorry, Bat, I should have stayed with him. Haywood's news of my brother being in trouble accelerated inside my head. My breaths came in gasps, and I felt like I would black out. My heart hammered inside my chest like it belonged to a rabbit running for its skin. I sprinted at full tilt towards the Lady Gay. Within a few seconds of the side of the dance hall, I witnessed two men skirmishing outside within plain sight of my brother Ed. A shot was fired. The ground around me spun as I saw the flash of a pistol. I tried to make the scene before me slow down to something my brain and body could cope with. I felt sick. One of the men, either Wagner or Walker, had fired at Ed almost point-blank range. The flame out from the gun barrel was so close to my brother's side that it set his coat on fire. Burning and bleeding with a bullet in the right side of Ed's abdomen, he lurched away from the scene. I was 60 feet away when the shot was fired at Ed. I saw my brother cut down without a chance to draw his own gun. A rage built up inside me like a deep water current. I did everything right. I tried to convince Ed not to take this job, and still, at this place, these boardwalks from hell took my brother with vengeance. In one blaze of a second, I fired four shots at Walker and Wagner. The two men were struggling with my brother. I gave no warning, and they had no time to know what hit him. In each of those four shots, I fired in an uncertain light under the greatest emotional stress. Every pull of the trigger, For every blaze from my barrel was for one purpose, to rip my two targets from existence, to silence Wagner and Walker for their crimes against my brother. Every flame from my pistol that went into the foul air of the night would be the one that laid their drunkenness to their final end. It was as if that sound became the end of a murderer, the last and brutal shout from the coldest of lungs. I then looked upon the gawking mob of sightseers in the background who saw my vengeance play out as the lead hit one target and then the other. Jack Wagner was struck by one bullet in the left side of the abdomen. The other three slugs tattooed Walker, one hitting his lung, the other two shattering his right arm. Four of Walker's cowboy companions fled in terror, as it seemed their taste for further violence disappeared with them into the darkest shadows of the street. They were collared by other officers later that night. I holstered my revolver and watched my brother walk across the street into George Hoover's saloon. I could tell he was severely wounded. His clothes were on fire from the discharge of the pistol, which had been placed against the right side of his abdomen. By the time I reached Ed, he had collapsed on the floor of Hoover's saloon. He had a hole in his abdomen large enough for the introduction of the whole pistol. The ball passed completely through him, leaving no possible chance for life. Ed was unconscious. I picked him up off the saloon floor and had him carried to a room at Deacon Cox's establishment. I called out for someone to get a doctor. I held him until the doctor arrived. After treating my brother, the doctor said, "'I'm sorry to say there's nothing more I can do.' It was with those fourteen words, constructed of simple letters, that cut deep into my soul. Thirty minutes later, my brother Ed Masterson died in my arms. It was at this moment my eyes burned with an ache to sob. My stomach rocked back and forth on the harsh waves of fear. "'Why are we taught to fear death?' I thought to myself. "'Why? Whether death is an eternal abyss of darkness, a fiery pit, or a clouded castle, we all fear it, even when vexed full of courage. Whether it comes as a relief or a surprise, we fear it.' I said with a whisper over Ed's cold body, "'This'll just about kill our mom. She'll never forgive me for letting you get killed in this damn town.' While Ed died in my arms, the fun-loving Texans who had killed my brother were suffering from my retaliation on their malicious actions. Jack Wagner stumbled into Peacock's saloon, trailing blood, and floundered towards Ham Bell. Wagner pleaded with Ham, "'Catch me, I'm dying,' said Wagner. Bell simply replied to Wagner's request, "'I want no part of such an unpopular character as you.' Bell shoved Wagner away, saying, "'I can't help you now. Die for all I care.' Wagner fell to the floor and lay there without medical assistance. Ham, along with several others, continued drinking at the bar as if Wagner was invisible. The drinkers at the bar continued to guzzle away until a group of silent Texans ventured into Peacocks and carried Wagner away to a rooming house. Walker, who had taken three bullets from my gun, was in slightly better condition than Wagner. His shirt front, covered with blood, and his almost severed right arm dangling at his side staggered into Peacock's saloon a few moments after Wagner. Walker was also given a cold reception by Ham Bell. I'd like to surrender my gun to you, sir, Walker announced. Throw it on the floor if you don't want it, he said. Walker dropped the gun, noted the hostile stares of Bell and the others at the bar, and made his way out the back door of the saloon where he collapsed. Walker's friends found him later and hauled him into a room over Bob Wright's mercantile house. His wealthy father came up from Texas a few weeks later and took Walker home, assured by the physicians that he had a good chance of recovery. But young Walker died of his lung wound about a month after the shooting, the third man to die under my gun. Wagner confessed to the killing of Ed Masterson before he died the next day and was buried on Boot Hill. Little sympathy was expended on the dead and dying Texans but the town of Dodge City truly mourned for Ed Masterson. The Ford County Globe reported in my brother's eulogy. Everyone in the city knew Ed Masterson and liked him. They liked him as a boy, they liked him as a man, and they liked him as their marshal. The marshal died nobly in the discharge of duty. We drop a tear upon his grave and remember, whether on the scaffold high or in the battle's van, the fittest place for man to die is when he dies for man. Dodge City gave my brother Ed its first public funeral, and probably its most sincerely regretful one. All the stores and even the saloons closed the day his body was carried to the cemetery. The funeral procession was headed by the City Council and included the volunteer fire company of which Ed had been a prominent member. All 60 of Ed's firefighting comrades attended, wearing their uniform and mourning bands. I was the only relative present. I followed the hearse alone on foot. My eyes were entirely fixed on the glass-sided wagon, which bared my brother's body until we reached Fort Dodge. The public outpouring of sympathy was of much consolation, as I watched the Reverend Ormond Wright sprinkle dirt over my brother's coffin as it was lowered into the grave. As the Reverend Wright began his oration over the grave, I only heard dust to dust, ashes to ashes. I could only think then to my mother's religious teachings and how these teachings of Christian way of life made a far deeper impression on Ed than on me. If Ed had been a little less Christian and shot those two Texans before they could grapple with him, he wouldn't be lying in that coffin. This was no country in which to love thy neighbor. It wasn't safe to follow the golden rule west of Kansas City on the boardwalks from hell.